welcome to a very special episode of Cool Breeze Over the Mountains. My name is Andrew Gormley, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Kelly Hills is a founding bioethicist of the consulting firm Rogue Bioethics. Kelly utilizes her firsthand experience in the software industry to inform her work on emerging issues in novel technologies, including self-driving cars, synthetic biology, biosecurity, and the entire 2018 saga of what's happening in genetics this time. She lives with her partner in business and life in an old Girl Scout cookie factory with their cats, Harley and Lexi, who sound delightful, (laughs) and a clutter of outdoors-only spiders, all of whom are named Charlotte. She's been a practicing Buddhist for 22 years, so uh, I think she knows a thing or two, but will also be the first to admit she needs to put a bit more work into the practice. Kelly, (laughs) that was a very grand uh, introduction. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you so much for having me. This sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) I I have some questions. (laughs) I, I may or may not have some answers. All right. The Girl Scout Cookie Factory sounds fun. Does your yeah. does your place smell like Snickerdoodle or Thin Mints? What's the deal? <laughs> that is always the first question we get. And no, sadly, we have not found any old boxes. It does oh. not smell like anything other than um, mold because we live on a canal. Um, ah. Also, um, okay. we live in um, one of the first industrialized cities in America. And okay. so originally this was a factory for making cloth. and Uh, When the mills left, they had to do something else with these grand old buildings, and the options were turn them down or put them to use for something else. And we happened to be in one of the buildings that for a while was something else. It was uh, Girl Scout cookies for, I believe, most of the 50s, 60s, and some of the 70s. I have a pretty cool print from the era advertising the cookies from this facility that hangs in our entryway. Nice. And um, after that, it became a, uh, a like industrial upholstery manufacturing plant. So uh, it went back to that, and then it laid kind of fallow for a while until it was turned into its current purpose, which is a multi-use residential facility. Perfect. So, yeah, that yeah. sounds really cool. It's pretty nice. We've got 24-foot ceilings, 20-foot windows, and the original <laughs> hardwood floors. So... It's, it's uh, got character is what I'm hearing. It does. But it would be nice if occasionally you could just open a cupboard and have a box of like Samoas <laughs> pop just out. Just randomly. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's ghost cookies. I love it, it. Yeah. Especially since my nieces are no longer Girl Scouts. So, you right. know, I actually have to look for the cookie connection instead of just being obligated to buy them. <laughs> so, right. Uh, That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, Again, thank you uh, for joining me today. We're going to talk about a subject that is, you know, he's just at any table, just randomly bring it up with friends, with family, <laughs> random strangers. We're talking about religion and specifically uh, as it relates to to Buddhism, really. Uh, you have been practicing for 22 years. Give or take, yeah. You mentioned Catholicism, so you are a, a convert. I, I, I am, assume, yes. yeah. What mm-hmm. what was the what was the journey like? What brought you to Buddhism in the first place? Uh, of all things, a commercial for the BBC. 
It well, was, uh, okay. I know, right? It's not exactly <laughs> your traditional conversion story. Yeah. Um, I was raised Catholic. My, um, my mother was Catholic, and my father was a relatively non-practicing Lutheran. And I believe in order to marry my mother, he actually had to agree that the children would be raised Catholic, as was common in that yeah. time period. Okay. I was, my, my first teachers in Catholicism um, were actually Jesuits, and Jesuit uh, priests and monks are very, well, let's say they're very focused on rule of law. Mm. And so, there, as a child, that was a lot of fun for me because it meant that you were encouraged to ask why. And I asked why a lot as a child. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that went over really, really well right up until the church that we attended changed the um, fathers who were at our church. And they rotated people out. We no longer had the two fabulous Jesuit fathers that I had basically grown up with. And the, uh, the people who came in and replaced them were not so interested in why. And that was probably... Also, around puberty, around testing boundaries and splitting my identity away from that of my parents and mm -hmm. kind of all of the things that I think frequently drive um, people away from the religion that they were raised in. And so, I did kind of your typical rebellious kid thing and went full hardcore atheist. And then that kind of mellowed out in my late teens um, in early 20s into kind of just an I don't know. And I was actually cooking dinner in the kitchen one day, and I had the BBC on around the corner. Yeah. I couldn't see the TV. I was just listening to it. This is well before podcasts and <laughs> well before YouTube. Um, aging myself here. And I heard the most delightful laugh and that's really what I remember, this crystal clear sound kind of breaking through almost the monotony of what I was doing. Um, my, my, ex, my then husband, now ex-husband, and I had just moved to a new city. I didn't really know anyone. I was going back to school and I was working from home and all of the things that kind of make it very easy to slip into monotony and also kind of humdrumness where... Everything's just kind of beige, for lack of a better description. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was making dinner and wasn't really mindful of what I was doing. It was just going through the motions. And, yeah, I heard this, this wonderful laugh, and it was warm and captivating. And I remember putting down what I was doing, making sure, you know, the stove was off and nothing dangerous was going to happen. And I just ran around the corner to see, like, who is this? What is this? Like, Just enthralled. And it was the Dalai Lama. And he was talking about how the BBC had been important for him as a child, because this was an anniversary year, and they had all kinds of people doing spots about the importance of BBC television or radio in their lives. And he was talking about the importance of BBC radio for him as a child in Tibet. And I just kind of collapsed onto the floor and watched the entire segment. And it was just like something had changed in life. And mm. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know where that laugh came from, that, that 
deep sense of joy. And that hooked me in. And I started studying and reading and asking questions and attending temple services at the, at the various uh, groups and monasteries, the sanghas in the area. Um, there was not actually a formal uh, Tibetan monastery in the area I lived at the time, but there was an informal group of Buddhists, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, who were practicing. And yeah, it just kind of went from there. <laughs> Wow, that's that's kind of a, a that's a cool origin story, really. Like yeah. very non-traditional, you know. Yes. Sometimes, you know, when people search for we'll get into the the correct terminology, but let's just say like a, a meaning, you know, for mm -hmm. everything. It's at a it's at a point of, I don't know, perhaps like crisis right. or or some other crossroads, but you know, it, 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 you never think like something just like, oh, it's just like a thing on the television over yeah. here that I just happened to overhear at the right time, like right place, right time. Very much so. Yeah. Just making dinner. <laughs> yeah. That changed everything. Yeah. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It was, uh, it's definitely not the expected, you know, trauma story that a lot of people, I think, um, expect in particular with Western narratives of religious conversion. Yes. Yeah. I think your story rings pretty true for me personally. Uh, I went to 12 years of Catholic mm. school, uh, you know, raised that way. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, not <laughs> I didn't necessarily like full out rebel against it. But when you start asking why and trying to figure things out. I said on our, our episode about Little Buddha, I think it's always a good idea. Religion is so tied to your geographic identity, mm -hmm. right? So if you're born in America, you were probably Catholic, maybe Jewish or some variety thereof, right? You're right. born in the Middle East. You might be Muslim. You, you know, you're, <laughs> you're born over in Tibet. There's a pretty good chance you might practice Buddhism, right? right. So it's always good to kind of just take a step back and be like, is, is this mm -hmm. what I really feel? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, my co-hosts, Whitney and Evan, have a, have a similar similar situation story-wise where, mm -hmm. you know, both the phrase that gets thrown around a lot is like spiritual, but not religious, right? Mm. With Whitney leaning more towards uh, Buddhism and Taoism, she mm -hmm. said, she's very, very into uh, <laughs> kind of what, what they have going on. Right. So. Yeah. I still actually call myself a cultural Catholic because okay. I am, I, I grew up within the Catholic religion in a Catholic household. A lot of the cultural touchstones for me are Catholic. Um, yeah. Christmas feels weird without having some kind of winter celebration. Yes. You know, I was, uh, I was in a church in Prague two weeks ago. I was actually at a cathedral in Prague two weeks ago and it's a tourist site and it's very weird. And Beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely stunning. I mean, this church took, the cathedral took a thousand years to build. It's just, you know, stained glass and wow. gothic arches and everything else you can imagine. And, you know, I crossed myself as I went into a pew to sit down. And yeah. I went and I looked for the candles. And then I was absolutely outraged because instead of having the candle offerings, they actually had a little box set up where you could pay money to light an electric candle for 15 oh. minutes. You could light one, <laughs> two, or four. And I was so horrified. And my 
husband, because um, I am remarried and I am married to a Chan Buddhist. Um, yeah. So two different bl- brands of Buddhism live in our household. Right. All right. And so he had no idea why I was like, oh, paying for the candles? <laughs> That's so wrong. And, you know, so I still have a lot of those knee-jerk reactions. And I always will, because that's how I was raised. So, uh, you know, I I am religiously Buddhist, but I am still very much culturally Catholic. And that's something that can't be converted out of. Oh, yeah. I I definitely have that same situation. I will occasionally, uh, part of my day job might be Let's say, let's say I film weddings from time to time. And as we're going through, I'm like, here's the Our Father, here's yes. the, it's Hail Mary. It's a, if you ask me what the act of contrition is, I could probably nail about 80% of that right <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, yes. So, yeah, it's all in there still, mm-hmm. even though, you know, it's it was largely just repetition as a yes. young person, right? <laughs> Which is, that's, I guess that's, that works well for some, for some people. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's actually something that the Dalai Lama says quite frequently that gets misunderstood. Uh, he encourages people to stay within their own religion. Buddhism is not a religion that goes out and proselytizes. He thinks that, for the most part, you're probably best off where you started. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And some of that is that cultural component, because a lot of religion is tied up in culture, even if it doesn't seem like it at first blush. And we certainly hit that, I wouldn't say frequently, but occasionally we hit that in our own household here, where the reason you do X in Tibetan Buddhism might not be the reason you do it in Chan, or it might not even be in Chan, because Chan has a different background than Tibetan Buddhism. It doesn't have the Bon animism that Tibetan Buddhism does, so there are some major differences. And that's in some ways come down to just being partly cultural. Yeah. You you brought up a couple things that I want to mm-hmm. touch on. Sure. So Buddhism as a practice, right? Mm-hmm. It's I hesitate to categorize it in any kind of like particular way because there's so much conflicting information about whether it is a religion, whether it's more of a like philosophy or lifestyle. So can you give like a little bit of clarification on on what you believe it specifically is i would call it a religion i i think it's it is actually the fourth largest religion in the world got it okay it is a very western response to and i don't mean anything bad by that to say that it's a philosophy rather than a religion and and i think that's because a lot of people have a hard time understanding how something can be a religion without there being a god right like a a central figure that acts as a kind of conduit to the beyond for for whatever you believe or worship really yeah. because we don't worship in buddhism that's a common misconception as a whole i should always i'm just, i'm not going to caveat every sentence but i am generally speaking very broadly and about buddhism there's always going to be some small exception uh, <laughs> and i'm also of course only speaking about my practice and my interpretation of my Tibetan practice in particular. But as a whole, (laughs) there are not gods to be worshipped in Buddhism. And I think that confuses people in Western societies who associate religion with gods and associate religion with rules handed down by these god figures who tell you what to do. That definitely is not Buddhism. But it is still a way of how to live your life 
in a moral and ethical manner. Yeah. And functionally, that's also what religion is. So, yeah, it is a religion. Yeah, it's a compass. I saw, <laughs> I, I believe, I did a little, I did like, uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I did a little bit of research uh, for the little Buddha episode that we did because it was, it was genuinely an interesting concept for me. And I saw that they had, I, I do not want to mess this up, but they had the five precepts. Is yes. that what they're called? There are and, five precepts. And it's very similar to what you would have in any, like the Ten Commandments or this or that. Sure. So it's like, here are, you know, here are our X amount of rules that are like, don't do these. <laughs> yeah. The five precepts in particular are kind of the minimum standard of Buddhist morality. Right. So they're kind of like the bare bones. <laughs> right. If you, uh, if you engage in these things, you might not be a Buddhist. But even within that, obviously, just like rules for any religion can be complicated and require context and interpretation, you can say... Abstain from intoxic intoxicants, for example. That's um, the fifth precept. Yeah. Uh, well, does that mean you don't take painkillers? No. Right. That doesn't. <laughs> um, at least some people believe that. Now, there are people who are going to argue that you can't take any painkillers, you can't have any alcohol, you can't do any of these things. Now, personally, I don't find that terribly middle pathy. Um, <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, and and I do frequently joke that I'm a relatively bad Buddhist, but I find anything that is strict dogma to be suspicious, and in particular, in the story of Siddhartha is that extremes in either direction are not the solution. Yeah. So for me, well, one, I, I have chronic pain. I, I have a, I have an actual disability. And life without keeping that tamped down would not be life. Um, my quality of life would be crap. I would not get out of bed. Yeah. I would not get out of bed because of the chronic pain, not because I'm a lazy editor who often writes from bed. <laughs> right. Those two are mutually exclusive. <laughs> they are very we just want right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Understood. Understood. Uh, um, but it can say, at the same time, utilize the interventions that modern medicine has created so that I can live a thoughtful moral life, but at the same time, don't get drunk off my butt. Because right. that okay. is an abuse of the precept, and that is not abstaining. So can you have a glass of wine with dinner? You know, a lot of people will say yes, because middle path. You're not overindulging, but you're also not taking the extreme ascetic view. But there are absolutely branches of Buddhism who take very hardline approaches to that. I just don't belong to one of those branches. Got it. Okay. That's a great segue into the next question I had, which was, if you could uh, just talk briefly about the different kinds of Buddhism. Like, you, you, I believe you said you're a, a Tibetan Buddhist? I am a Tibetan Buddhist. And um, then there are how many other? No, oh, there's so many. <laughs> I know that question is essentially like asking how many branches of Christianity are there, but I'm just trying to get like a, a high level overview. Broadly speaking, there are two branches of Buddhism. 
there is Theravadan Buddhism, and that is, you can consider that translation to be kind of small raft Buddhism or small boat Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And it is, in a lot of ways, the considered to be the purer or more like what original Indo Tibetan Buddhism probably was. Mm-hmm. And it is very widespread throughout Southeast Asia. So Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka, okay. kind of down in the southern swoop. All right. And then you have Mahayana Buddhism, which is the big raft Buddhism. And those names basically come from the attitude the religions within them take towards helping other people towards enlightenment. Uh, small boat Buddhism is very much focusing on yourself, mm-hmm. whereas big raft, kind of as the name implies, is, is yes, you're focusing on getting yourself to enlightenment, but let's bring other people along with you. Okay. Right. And Mahayana Buddhism, and that's also, again, a kind of gross simplification, but, you know, we'll go with it. Sure. Um, Mahayana is going to include um, Nichiren Buddhism, Shingon, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Chan, right. Pure Land, a lot of, basically everything that's not the very specific Theravadan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, within Mahayana Buddhism, you could say that there are... Lots and lots of branches. And I'm sure there are in Theravadan Buddhism, too. I'm just not as familiar with them. Theravadan Buddhism is not common in America. And um, I simply don't have a lot of exposure to it. Okay. Are these all based off of, like, specific texts? Or or what is the... Is this passed down kind of generationally? How How do we have all of these different varieties like i know like a lot of a lot of um you know christianity a lot of things christianity wise are like okay we have this thing called the bible right, <laughs> right? and then a lot of religions use this by but we now we've changed you know we've changed the interpretation of these psalms or or these letters or whatever mm-hmm. uh, does buddhism have a similar analog not especially so there okay. are some texts that are going to be broadly familiar to almost anyone. Um, mm-hmm. For example, Little Buddha mentions um, the Heart Sutra at one yes. point. And most of us are going to know what the Heart Sutra is. I have a, a beautiful rendition of it behind me on the wall, actually, um, in beautiful uh, kanji cutout from oh. a crafter on Etsy that my husband found as a gift for me. Um, nice. And so there are some kind of basic texts like that that you might consider universal. Some sutras that everyone works with. There might be some mudras, so the positions of your hands, or some mantras like Om Mani Padme Hum Mm -hmm. that we all know. But not everyone is going to use the same canon. We don't all have the same scriptures. For example, um, there is a poet by the name of Shanti Deva, and he wrote a book of poetry called The Way of the Bodhisattva or the the Bodhicharya Vatara. And I have a copy of it um, that has been translated from the Tibetan. And my husband had never seen this book before because Shantideva is just not that important in Chan Buddhism. I'm sure if he probably dug around, somebody would have a copy of it and they might want to talk about it at some point, but it's just not of his lineage. More importantly... I think, 
is in the Christian scriptures, they are often considered to be the revered, the revealed word rather of either God or one of his prophets. That's not generally what Buddhist scriptures are. Mm. So we don't have any belief that something should be accepted on authority no matter what. There's a very famous quote from the Dalai Lama who says that if science proves Buddhism wrong, then Buddhism will just have to change. And <laughs> and that isn't very much, I think, kind of um, speaks a little bit to the heart of what Buddhism is, and, and partly, I think, why it felt like home for me after being uh, brought up to ask why by Jesuits. Um, Buddhism very much encourages you to investigate the texts, to ask your teachers why, and to to find the meaning that you need to find. And the sutras, our texts, are there as guides, but they're not the will of any divine being. Got it. All right. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I love that it quote. Is, Was that yes. from the current Dalai Lama? Yes. Oh, what a guy. <laughs> He's got some zingers, that guy. He I really like him a lot. Absolutely <laughs> wonderfully engaging human being. Um, he's also relatively old and occasionally puts his foot in his mouth, but uh, we all do that. And right. uh, he'll be yeah. the first to tell you he is only human. So That's true. But he does have mm-hmm. a certain magnetism, though, so... I have just one last question. You've you've really enlightened me here. No pun intended. I guess pun intended. Sure. Um, what does what does practicing Buddhism look like on just like a day to day basis? Right. Like mm-hmm. as a as a Catholic, <laughs> you're like, all right, I got Sunday morning mm-hmm. probably. Then we'll get brunch, and then the rest of my week is you know just try not to break the commandments. But what, what does it look like? For a Buddhist, what, you wake up, what, what so, is the day? Yeah, the, what is... We don't have that kind of specific holy days. You can get into it. You can look for, instead of having the weekly holy day, we do have calendars that have auspicious days um, and unauspicious days. And those vary from different flavors of Buddhism. Um, as a rule, do you go mm-hmm. to church? No. Um, do the local sanghas, whether or not they're in a monastery or just in a in somebody's you know community center or living room have weekly meetings yes they're generally on sunday because of convenience um but a lot of sure. things also do things throughout the week whether or not that's going to be the buddhist version of bible study for new people or who people who just want to have you know advanced reading groups um the sangha the community is very important in buddhism and that's uh one of the areas where i am currently lacking um i have not found a community locally to be a part of and so that's kind of, in some ways that is a bit of a falling down on my part because when you take refuge you are taking refuge in the buddha the dhamma and the sangha it's the community is a part of all of this because they are the people who you investigate with and you go on this journey with. Uh, So far as daily practice, yes. (laughs) If I was a very good Buddhist, I would be (laughs) meditating daily. Um, I am currently not a very good Buddhist, but my husband, for example, meditates for generally 30 to 60 minutes a day. Uh, As a Tibetan Buddhist, I do have an altar, so 
there are altar offerings that get set up and taken down daily when I'm in meditating uh, grace, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, since I'm not meditating right now, I'm not taking the time to do that. Also, I have a cat who really thinks that the offerings are for her. <laughs> it's funny and yes. it's cute because I mostly do water offerings, but it's meant I've had to change right. some of the offerings I do. Um, I used to do water offerings with a little bit of scented oil, and I can't do that because somebody th- seems to think that I've just left out a roll of cups for her to drink from, and the <laughs> statue of Buddha is just kind of in her way. Excuse yeah, me. No, I've Excuse actually me. come into the, the room more than once and seen her kind of just draped over Buddha's head as she's trying right. to get over. And of course, she always moves right. fast enough that I can't That'd get That'd be great it. for the Twitters, I know, the Instagrams. Right? But yeah. also, I, it, yes, <laughs> it would just, it would go so viral. Um, but also, she's a cat, so they're, they're small enough that if she's in a bad mood, she can also just go whap and knock them right off the altar. Yeah. And these are things that I think that, you know, Buddha would find funny. <laughs> Personally, True, yes. uh, you know, I don't, I don't find anything wrong with that. And a lot of people actually, some of the altar offerings they might leave are bird seed. That So after it's on the altar, then it gets offered to the birds or fruit for wildlife, stuff like that. So none of that's actually terribly out of the realm of what is already kind of done. It's just a matter of not wanting to deal with having a wet carpet every day. Um, But you don't have to do that. That's just kind of part of my practice as a Tibetan Buddhist. My husband doesn't have this practice in Chan Buddhism. He basically just grabs a meditation cushion and goes and finds a wall to stare at and is much better at meditating than I am. I need to do the <laughs> chanting. I need to have my mala out where I'm counting it, um, very similar to a rosary. Other things that you kind of do uh, on a daily basis, is, is a, it's a lot about mindfulness. It's about being aware of what you're doing and why you're doing uh, For me, a lot of times that means uh, working on my temper, not allowing my temper to control me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a little bit of my, uh, my grandfather's red hair running through me, and uh, <laughs> I can have a bit of a temper. And so, you know, for me, it's about mindfulness and what I'm doing. Why is this irritating me? Why am I angry? Why do I want to react to this? Stopping, pausing, letting it rush through me, and then letting it go. And being a little bit more thoughtful about my responses. Um, You can do meditation while you're moving. So I try when I can to often do, um, if I'm in physical therapy, for example, uh, I might have mantras going in my head as I'm moving and just reminding myself to be present in the moment and to not get lost in the worries and the stresses and the fears uh, when your body isn't working right. Um, there's also my, you can be mindful and present while you're making dinner. You know, don't get lost in that beige fog of dinnerness, but <laughs> be aware of what you're doing and be thoughtful about what you're doing and be thankful for the people who grew your food or for those of us who aren't vegetarians and not all Buddhists are vegetarians. Um, be thankful for the life that it was given for us to be able to eat. Um, so it's a lot about being awareness in the moment and not losing yourself in the stresses of tomorrow or the recremations of yesterday, but being aware in the moment. 
See, you say a lot of those things, <laughs> and even before, so even before I watched this movie, I felt kind of predisposed. I was like, I really like what's going on over here because I've been listening to a lot of uh, a lot more people that just I don't know if it's explicitly Buddhism, but the mindfulness mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, Alan Watts yes. and uh, even some even some Christian. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Rohr. Yeah. Some of these philosophers. I am a philosopher by training. So, yes. Right. So, yeah, th I mean, this all makes a ton of sense. Like if we could all. Just do just like what you said, like take a take a beat, right? right. Process it, then respond. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love it so much. Yeah, that sounds. Oh, <laughs> I think that there are a lot of things in and it's not necessarily unique to Buddhism. Some of this, of course, you can find the the genesis of in Hinduism or mm -hmm. Jainism, because these are older religions that influenced Buddhism. Um you know, Siddhartha, as as Little Buddha shows, he went from indulgence to an ascetic lifestyle. And in that asceticism, he did learn meditation and he learned ascetic principles and he learned a lot of other things from other masters. You know, he was out there for six years doing this stuff before yeah. he said, no, this isn't the right way either. And so Buddhism does have a lot of heritage from these uh, older religions. And I think some of those things you find there too, um, which is why yoga, I think, appeals to so many people, or even Tai Chi. Um, a lot of them, are, uh, both of them are also about slowing down, being in the moment, thinking about these things. And I think it's why a lot of Americans want Buddhism to perhaps be a philosophy and not a religion. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm not saying that for of course, that mindfulness can't be useful to people sans a religious entrapment. And many Western religions also have practices of mindfulness, of meditation. Um, there are the walking nuns who do these things. They can be found within Western religions as well, uh, perhaps not as well known in America as in mm -hmm. uh, Europe and the Middle East. But... I think that might be one of the reasons why we, we get that admonishment that people should really consider their own religious upbringings before they convert to Buddhism, because it can seem sunshiny and so nice and perfect, but people don't necessarily see that, like anything, it can have some bad downsides, not necessarily bad sides, but downsides too, especially if it's not utilized properly. That was really really great I, I i learned a lot i mean i might be hopping on this big raft myself <laughs> you know it's it's got some uh it's got some cool parts to it i mean i it, you know it's uh i am definitely a better person than i was when i was not a buddhist um some of that is merely maturity but a lot of it is the perspective that it's it gives me um and yeah i am definitely grateful for that so that that was amazing. I, I want to ask you about the movie now because you actually took the two and a half hours to sit down and watch it again. Yes. Uh, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, it was fun. My husband actually hadn't seen it. So we had coincidentally been chatting about it a couple of weeks ago. And I was kind of surprised that he hadn't seen it. But yeah, you know, um, understandably, it wasn't really a huge thing in Australia. So it... <laughs> 
uh, right. didn't really roll through his consciousness, and so it was a nice uh, a nice chance for us to sit down on our newly delivered couch, which just came us at the right moment. It was auspicious, yeah. and uh, yeah, no, it was nice to sit down and watch it with him, and uh, we had to keep pausing it to be like, wait, so does your Buddhism do that too? And <laughs> chat about these things. Oh, so a, fun. It was a wonderful opportunity for us just to uh, spend a little bit more than two and a half hours <laughs> talking yeah. about stuff. All right. Mm-hmm. That's great. It sparked a little bit of uh, conversation. Yeah. It's always a good thing. <laughs> I wonder, right out of the gate, uh, just at like a high level, did you like the movie, right? Yeah, I did actually. Um, I know that that puts me in a, a, a rarefied class of people. Um, <laughs> and it's sure. not my first time seeing it. I did see it, I want to say, oh, late 90s, early 2000s. So I didn't see it when it came out either. Um, okay. But I feel like I must have seen it after I moved to Seattle at some point. So that kind of gives me a rough time frame. It had to be after um, 2000, probably. And uh, I feel like I must have, because a Buddhist living in Seattle, going to the Sakya Monastery, how could I not sit down and watch right. this movie? And also, Keanu Reeves fan. Um, oh, there so you go. All right. was, You're in good company. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of like a, a mandatory thing. So I, I watched it then, and I remembered... Um, uh, overall decent impression of it but nothing terribly specific yeah <laughs> and so yeah it was it was really interesting to watch it again i know that one of the biggest critiques i think i've seen of it consistently over the years is that the siddhartha story seemed stilted and the language was weird and it just didn't low. And I kind of feel like a lot of people missed the idea that this was a children's story being read to them. Yes. And children's stories as a whole are pretty simplistic. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Uh I think when we were watching it, I would say personally, and I don't know what this actually says about me, given given your current comments, I like the Siddhartha stuff the most. Mm-hmm. I, I thought we take all of that and just lift it from the rest <laughs> of the movie and you have like a really great 45 to 60 minute <laughs> great story about Buddhism, about Buddha, right? right. So, um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, like a lot of children's stories, simplified. A right. lot. Very simplified. And and there was definitely one point where we paused it and we both went, that's not how that happened. Oh, I'd be curious if you have like a, an example or two, because that, that's what I'd love mm-hmm. to hear. No, yeah. The big point was, um, so the story was relatively accurate. Um, they, mm-hmm. they explained um, through his mother dying relatively quickly after he was born. His father loved him very much, wanted him to grow up and be this wonderful warrior king because he was going to be a fantastic warrior king. Um, And did everything he could to make that happen um, in defiance of the prophecy that that Asita, the ascetic monk, gave. And he does... You know, uh, Siddhartha does decide he wants to go outside of the the walls of his keep and see what the cities are. And his father does basically stage the cities, get rid of anybody old, sick, dying, whatever. It's got to be perfect out there. Yeah. So that's kind of the first deviation because Siddhartha actually does this four times. He goes out and from the very get-go, he knows that his father has set this up. 
And so he sneaks away from his handlers. It's not this grand celebration of look at how wonderful this all is. It's so new and perfect. Neither of us also have that tradition of a musician being what gives him the impetus to go outside either, um, Mm -hmm. or his wife's conversation with him. Both of our religions more have this sense that Siddhartha understood that he had all of this wonder around him. He had all of these magnificent things, everything he could ever ask for, and yet he didn't feel right. Something felt off, incomplete, not necessarily whole for this. And and so he, he was wondering, like, why is this? Why, if I have everything, am I not satisfied? And that's what leads him to wanting to go see more of the world. So he goes out, he escapes his handlers with Chana, and then we do see him seeing old age, sickness, and death, and having the realizations. But each one of those is a separate event. It's not all smushed into one. And that made sense narratively. There's no reason to show going out and sneaking away four times, you know. You, yeah. you kind of have to make some concessions for uh, visual narrative versus uh, storytelling. <laughs> He experiences a lot on his movie trip. It's like, wow. Yeah, you know, that was a hell of a gap year. <laughs> and uh, and then the last thing he sees is the monk who is content by, as far as Siddhartha can tell, he's the monk. The monk seems to accept all of these things that are going to happen. And he wants that. He wants that acceptance. And so that's what makes him leave. And he does leave his wife. He does leave his child. He is not a perfect person. That's one of the things I actually kind of like about it. This is not yeah. this is not a perfect prophet. Um, he does some pretty crappy things, including leaving his family. He abandons his wife and child. And then he goes out and he starts learning from these monks. Um, it's a little different than what's portrayed in the movie. He doesn't gallop off on a horse and then just immediately join the aesthetics in the woods, but that's okay. Again, we're talking about narrative collapse and sure. how things have to go for visual medium is going to be different. Um, I did think it was a nice touch that they had everybody in a fog of sleep and it was, there was like a literal fog because in in the telling of the Siddhartha's story, we actually frequently hear the phrase that they were they were in a fog, that their world was a fog. And that's oh. the state that they were in and that he was in as well before he woke up and left this fog, this trance, this dreamlike state. And so I thought that was a very nice little gesture to the Buddhist yeah. question. But the big thing that really happened that made us both go, wait, what? No. (laughs) What what just happened here was when he sits down with the aesthetics and a snake comes and shelters him. (laughs) I thought it. I was going to write it down. But yeah. Oh, okay. That's out of sequence. That does happen in the story. But it doesn't happen when he is joining the aesthetics. Um, He does join the aesthetics. He does... The, those five aesthetics, he does become their leader. Um, this is after studying with other people. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is right at the end of his ascetic life before he reaches enlightenment. But that is not when the Naga, which is the name of uh, for that creature, it's a snake human thing, actually appears after Siddhartha has 
reached enlightenment, or when he has reached enlightenment, depending on which religion and religious branch you're in and what story you're listening to. But anyhow, that that happens later. (laughs) He's Mm -hmm. actually protecting Siddhartha while Siddhartha is under the bow tree meditating, and the Naga comes along and protects him from the elements. And so it was very weird because that happened, and then the story cuts back to the present, and we were both like, did did the movie just like completely skip over the whole like <laughs> ultra self denial ascetic starving yourself three grains of rice you know collapsing in yeah. the river thing and then enlightenment because those five ascetics do actually end up becoming buddha's disciples disciples in quotation marks um they they yeah. become um followers of buddha after he reaches enlightenment as well he goes and he finds them so seeing that all like squished together it was a little weird and then of course it goes back and it, it picks up and he's still an ascetic so it was very confusing to us to have the naga at that point and not later on and i'm i'm guessing they moved it for visual impact because it wouldn't it wouldn't have been necessarily as dramatic when you've already got Mara there, like throwing his daughters and fireballs in the ocean and army at you. But it was still, it was really disconcerting because so many, so much of Buddhist iconography actually shows a snake flared behind a sitting Buddha because that was such an important moment. So we all agreed that that was a pretty striking visual Mm -hmm. for sure. And now that you put it in the, the right context, it's almost assuredly for just a visual impact. Exactly. Like how can this person demonstrate to these five holy men, you know, you know, right. whatever that he, he's, he can hang yeah. <laughs> essentially. Right. But it's just very weird because the, the Naga is one of the first people who talks to him as an enlightened being. And it has a whole big thing. There's a whole story that comes out of it. And the Nagas afterwards and, a lot of people like to talk about the fact that in Buddhism, the three, the two things that kind of helped him to become Buddha was actually a snake and a woman, where it's the opposite in Christianity. The, the woman and the snake are not positive things in the yes. Christian origin myth, and they are in the Buddhist origin myth, because the other thing that it it did show. And again, it kind of, it was missing a little bit of the context was um, when he is an ascetic and he's going down to the water, the loot thing, that's not in, you know, you have to tighten the loot just enough because it's too loose. Right. No, that's not in there either. Dang. That was a good line. It was a very good <laughs> line, but yeah, basically he passes out. Somebody revives him yeah. with, very specially prepared milk. She'd been going to make an offering to the forest, and she actually thought that uh, Siddhartha was a forest spirit because he was so emaciated. She thought he was a ghost. Wow. And so she thought he was. she was making her offering to the forest god, spirit, ghost thing. And it's not, <laughs> not a human being. And um, she helps nourish him. She's the one who gives him the grains of rice to eat and helps him kind of realize that he has to be strong in mind, not 
and body in order to find the middle way, not just strong in mind. Yeah. And she becomes one of one of the first Buddhist nuns. She's not the first, but she's one of the first. So wow. she's very important to the story too. And so, you know, it was good that they kept her a woman and they mostly kept her story, but they also kind of changed it around a little bit. And I guess it's supposed to be a little bit more endearing to see somebody talking to a water buffalo um, <laughs> and yes. sharing like enlightened thoughts. I mean, he hadn't reached enlightenment at that point, but he at least had the thought at that point. And it's not quite the original story again. Okay. It's cool to hear the, mm-hmm. how they're kind of shifting these things around and yeah. and what subtle subtleties have, have adjusted there. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I can kind of, I can understand why from a narrative point of view and from a film point of view, this would be a necessary adjustment, but I can also see how it would be very confusing. Like why did this person just come out of nowhere and have these things that he needed? Right. That was one of our questions too. I think in the movie, it might've been a bowl of rice also. that It, It wasn't the, it wasn't the bowl of milk and then the bowl of rice. It was just the bowl of rice. Right. And I was like, huh. That's interesting. And then there's more shorthand where it just so happened that the ascetics were, they're like, what are you doing? You're eating. What's going on? Well, that actually does happen. Okay. So so that's all right there. That is correct. They do see him being nourished back to health. They see him eating because he'd basically stopped eating at that point. The the bits about only surviving off of what the forest gave them, that was accurate. He was down to a couple of grains of rice a day. (sighs) starving himself and he would routinely faint um, from hunger or he would hold his breath until he fainted because he was trying to break his body and and separate his mind from his body. Think of that in terms of uh, body and mind duality in Westernism. Uh, What is your body? What is your mind? And he had to reach the point that realized that his body was what was housing his mind and they could not be so simply separated right now for what he needed and for what he needed to walk that middle path and to find enlightenment was a body strong enough to convey his mind. And that's, that's part of the, you can't have the overindulgence. You can't have the body that is too relaxed, shall we say, uh, too comfortable, um, too corpulent (laughs) in those times. Um, but you also can't have the body that is too emaciated. You need to be somewhere in the middle, um, because your body needs to be able to house you through this turn on the wheel. I hope this all ties in together. This, this is the teacup thing they're talking about, right? The body is, the mind is the tea, Mm -hmm. the cup doesn't, you know, the cup breaks, but the mind just, yeah, I love that. And I was hoping, I was like, please don't let that be just some figment of the director or writer's imagination. No, I think that can be considered a very accurate portrayal of how some branches of Buddhism, including uh, many Tibetan Buddhism, see the notion of reincarnation. Um, not all Buddhists actually believe in reincarnation. Oh, okay. Uh, it's it's not a necessity to being a Buddhist. Um, personally, I'm still an agnostic when it comes to that. Uh, and you can be an agnostic Buddhist because, right. well, one, agnostic means you don't know, but also we don't have deities. So the whole atheist agnostic gnostic thing doesn't really apply because um, we're, we're never going to be theists. So, <laughs> yes, correct. But also, I don't know what happens after death. And there are 
scriptures that say that Buddha doesn't know what happens after death either. He'll find out when he gets there. And a lot of people interpret reincarnation the way that we saw in the movie that say that your essence continues and it moves through different mm-hmm. incarnations. Some people have chosen to interpret what Buddha says before he dies about using your flame to light the candles after you to be more about literally that, using your life to light the candle next to you, to inspire the next candle, to inspire the next candle, not as a literal metaphor for one candle goes out and the next one is lit. Right. Yeah. Just kind of a passing. Yeah. So, um, but the nice thing is that there is no reason that you have to go down on one side or the other because the way you ought to live is the same. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's great. (laughs) I'm just, I'm like, I'm not, I'm I'm not trying to interrupt. I'm just like, I'm nodding the whole time. I'm like, yes, it all checks out. I love it. I love it. Yes. (laughs) If you, if you like really kind of dense speculative fiction, Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a book about this. Um, It's an alternate universe book. Basically what happened if, The East was Ascendant and not the West, and it follows a bunch of characters through their reincarnations. Oh, okay. So um, there are these, there's a belief that the people that you interact with in your life, you will interact with in all of your lives. That everybody you have contact with, you're having contact with because you've already had some kind of karmic contact with them before. So you all reincarnate in roughly the same grouping. You're all threads that are kind of tied together. You will interact with one another as you go through life. And yeah, it's called The Years of Rice and Salt. And he basically goes through this idea of reincarnation, and it's a specifically Tibetan Buddhist perspective for a good chunk of it. So we're talking about the bardo, which is reincarnation stuff that we don't really have to get into Um, (laughs) and and what happens when you're dead and whether or not you reincarnate and all of these wonderful things and it's a very dense but very good book and i definitely highly recommend it for anybody who is interested in that kind of thing and and in speculative fiction and would be interested in reading kind of what what the world might have been like if uh, if the East had been a little bit more dominant than uh, than the West. Interesting. I love that. I'll I'll definitely link that in the show notes for everybody who who might want to dive into that. Also, I've wrote it down. I also cool. found it on Amazon. Yeah, so, it's a fantastic uh... <laughs> book. Uh, definitely recommend it. It's an interesting look at at exactly that concept of what happens to our essence on reincarnation and it's very accurate to the perspective of some forms of buddhism anyhow i i wanted to ask you mm-hmm. specifically about I, so i think we covered a majority of the stuff but mm-hmm. the the end of of the siddhartha buddha yes. story can you walk me through a little bit of of, of what was going on there cuz i i, I caught some names and we have these daughters mm, mara's and, daughters but, right yeah but it was not specifically i don't know if that was maybe i wasn't paying attention or i don't know if it was explicitly explained who this person was yeah i'm not sure if it was explicitly explained either um i don't think it was that's one of those things where i should have been paying better attention but unfortunately i 
have prior knowledge. So, <laughs> right. You're like, oh, I got um, this. <laughs> well, actually, the pro- what we were focusing on was that the – so what happens when Buddha reaches enlightenment? That story kind of varies mm-hmm. between Chan and Tibetan Buddhism, but it actually also varies between – what age group you might be talking to or how narrative versus historic you might be talking because, you know, none of us actually believe that Siddhartha was born looking like a nine-month-old baby who could walk <laughs> right, and, and had, talk, and talk pretty well. <laughs> and have lotus blossoms spring from his feet as he walked. Right. Like, that's obviously the narrative of religion coming in. But we do know that he was likely born in this area mm-hmm. at the time, and his mother's name was Maya and all of these things. So there's a lot of the historic there, too. So... Some iterations say that he meditated for seven days, reached enlightenment, and got up and went and actually gave a lecture to a passing Brahmin about the middle way and um, (laughs) being compassionate, actually, as the most important virtue, and picked up a follower and then went to find his ascetic friends because he was like, who's going to understand what I am talking about? They will. And so he walks to find them and talks to them and then ends up giving his first big teaching and then it grows from there. Other stories say that he was sitting under the bow tree and Mara came to tempt him and try to distract him from reaching enlightenment. Mara didn't. And then after that, he sat for an additional 49 days and went through all of these different stages of proving to different beings that he was enlightened. And and so there are different variations within that. So the basic theme, though, no matter if we're talking about like the condensed seven-day version or the more than 49-day version is he decides that he's going – so he he goes through the ascetic life and realizes that a life of extreme denial has as many problems with it as a life of self-indulgence. And in some ways, you could say it's just a different kind of indulgence, and that the middle path is the answer. And he decides he's going to sit underneath this bow tree, and he is going to figure this out. And he thinks about attachments and fears and loves and all of these things, and At some point in there, whether it's in the seven days, whether if it's immediately before or immediately after he actually achieves enlightenment, Mara comes along and sends his daughters to distract him. Sometimes there's five of them, sometimes there's three of them, you know, all of these uh, can vary a a little bit, rather. Yeah. Who is Mara? Mara is a demon, for lack of a better word word he's he's got different representations in different kinds of buddhism he's associated with uh death he's a a very antagonistic force i guess you could say he's opposing enlightenment Um, some people might say he's the embodiment of greed and hate he wants to stop people from liberating themselves from the cycle of rebirth which is what Siddhartha was doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so he's 
trying to distract Siddhartha with all of these things, with the pleasures of the flesh, with the beauties of his daughters, um, with the threat of death itself, ultimately with the ego. Because, you know, we always we, we often talk in Buddhism about the death of the ego. Um, yeah. Or if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him, uh, as they like to say a little bit further over. <laughs> Uh, not not my not my uh, religion on that one. That that would be the husband's variation uh-huh. of things. But okay. um, Mara is generally considered to be both literal being, but also the psychological. It is just the ego talking. Okay. And so, yeah, Mara sends his daughters. Mara threatens death and destruction. Mara ultimately is the ego saying, "I." And you see that in the scene where uh, Keanu Buddha pulls himself out of the water. Yeah, yeah. And they they have a back and forth, and he realizes that there is no I, which is a enduring and important part of Buddhism itself. In that we always talk about the self, but what is the self? Right. And you know, there's a really beautiful a uh, poem from actually Shantideva, the uh, the poet I mentioned earlier, who asks basically, you know, the body is not ribs or hands, armpits, shoulders, bowels, or entrails. It is not the head or the throat. From none of, none of these is body constituted. And he kind of goes through asking, you know, where is the body? Is the body in your limbs? You know, is the body in your stomach? What happens if you lose a hand or an arm or a leg? Are you still I? How can that be? Where does I reside? Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful long poem. It stretches on over pages and pages and pages. And it basically deconstructs the notion of self. And you see in very quick visual shorthand that same thing happening in that last scene. And then he basically says, as the earth, as my witness, I have reached enlightenment. And that's when he touches earth. And that's actually a a mudra, um, a hand pose that we use in Buddhism when meditating and stuff. And it is just reaching down and touching the earth. And then, yeah, they have the petals falling and he's reached enlightenment and he's smiling in some stories. And then it continues on and other challenges happen because... Other people need to be proved that he has reached enlightenment. In 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 the ones that are probably a little bit more based in reality, it's only a seven-day ordeal. And at the end of that time, he gets up, has something to eat, and goes off yeah. and does things. Um, the interesting thing that both my husband and I found about this, though, is... And I, and I think, to be fair, this is why it was called the story of Siddhartha and not the story of Buddha. Because he's, he's not the Buddha until he becomes enlightened. Yeah. Because that is literally what Buddha means. It means the enlightened one or the awakened one. And so he's not Buddha until that moment where he touches ground. So it is the story of Siddhartha. But for us, that's interesting, I guess. But that's not Buddhism. You know, Buddhism is, as you mentioned, it's the five precepts. It's the noble path. It's the four truths. It is also the Buddha. And it's the Sangha as well, the community of Buddhist practitioners. But so far as the story itself goes, the important thing isn't really that he was a prince who 
had a wonderful, rich, everything he wanted life and then had an ascetic life and then he found the middle way. The important thing is what came after that. It's the teachings of the four truths. It's the teaching of the Eightfold Path. It's the teachings of the five precepts. It's it's the practice of Buddhism itself to actually liberate yourself from suffering and moving to something that isn't suffering. And the movie barely touched on that. Right. I think you could argue, you could probably argue, let's put it that way, that the contemporary storyline was trying to outline in some ways the problems with attachment and the suffering that comes from attachment with, in particular, uh, Dean's attachment to his house and his job, his best friend Evan having lied about things and going bankrupt and costing them probably their house and the presumed suicide of his best friend and all of these things that are shaking up his attachments in his world and showing him what we think of suffering to be and what suffering actually is, which are not necessarily the same thing. So I think you could read that in there, but it basically then is going to assume that you know what the four noble truths are, that you know what the eightfold path is. So it's a little weird in that regard. And it's kind of like it, maybe it's trying to speak to people who already know these things, but for those of us who do know these things, the story that was told is, I don't know. I mean, I guess the closest analogy I can think of, it, it's, it would be like if you just told the story of Mary and Joseph up to the manger and and were like, and that's Christianity. <laughs> and you're like, um. Right. Kind of missed the stuff that was, or, or you know, even even if you just told the story of Jesus up until he was, you know, disappeared into the wilderness and then that's it. You stopped. Right. And so you miss all of the teachings that happened when he comes back, when he's 30 suddenly and he's spent all this time in the wilderness <laughs> where a lot of us actually who have studied some, a little bit of religion think that he actually went East and met Buddhist monks and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very much an abbreviated kind of aborted story. And you're like, you're missing all the actual important parts to that oh okay so yeah that was a little weird yeah so that was the one thing that we kind of touched on in our in our talk about this this so this movie was directed by i I don't know Mm -hmm. how familiar you are with film it's bernardo bertolucci and he's a famed atheist right so he found to me it seems like he found buddhism and Mm -hmm. was like oh this is kind of interesting there are no movies about this which is very true we have very very few right um in fact, my husband recently gave a lecture on the fountain predicated partly on the fact that he wanted to talk about it because there are so few implicit or explicit Buddhist movies in Western canon. That's specifically kind of why I wanted to talk with you mm-hmm. to see, like, I could, you know, maybe I could make a movie about Buddhism, too, mm-hmm. and it might be maybe as good as this, right? Because, like, as much research as I've done, it requires someone with the practice, right? And I don't know if he consulted anybody or... To be fair, almost everybody who was a monk in that movie was actually a Buddhist practitioner or a, a monk. Wow. I did not even think to consider that. They were all pretty good, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like okay. Well, there's a reason for that. Now, unfortunately... One of them has had a pretty scandalous 
half decade attached to him, and he's been forced into retirement. Um, oh. He wasn't a monk. He was a Rinpoche. <sighs> Lay practitioner not even going to bother worrying people about the different levels of distinction. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, unfortunately um, he was one of the larger public faces of Buddhism in the West and has had a lot of very unpleasant accusations wow. um, met against him. And uh, he was the happy uh, Seattle Buddhist. Oh, okay. All right. I know who you're referring to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the venerable monk in the uh, monastery in Bhutan was actually, I believe, a relatively well-regarded Buddhist uh, monk. And most of the other people in robes were uh, Chinese or Tibetan Buddhists. I think we all kind of assumed, I mean, it was too, <laughs> the, the level of detail that had been put into the third act when they're mm -hmm. actually in Bhutan. It's yes. like, this is clearly there, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. This is not a set, like, down to no. the, like, the very, the intricate prayer wheels and mm -hmm. everything that was going on. I mean, that was a beautifully shot and executed part of the film. I don't know if you've ever been. I would love to visit now, having seen it from yeah. just this, but... I have not. I Asia has not uh, yet met my passport, <laughs> right. so hopefully, eventually. <laughs> it's funny that you you had actually mentioned that your husband was talking about uh, movies impl implicit mm -hmm. or explicit. I when I was watching this uh, personally, this this reminded me of a another Keanu project. You know, for better mm -hmm. or worse, I got some strong strong Matrix vibes from this. Oh, of course, yes. uh, because like. Evan, uh, one of my co-hosts, had pointed it out explicitly. He refers to, I think he refers to himself, or I guess in this case his ego, as the architect. And mm -hmm. in one of the Matrix films, there is a character called the architect. Yes. And then mm -hmm. the thing that you had specifically said about Siddhartha Young, uh, and he has everything, but he still feels empty. They mm -hmm. said, like, previous iterations of The Matrix, they made it perfect, and it was terrible, right. so they had to introduce suffering. I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I got a lot of these cool vibes that are coming through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I believe it kind of went off the rails for Matrix 2 and 3, <laughs> but... <laughs> and, and, and that's going to be polite about it. Sure. But if you read a lot of the stuff from the Wachowski uh, sisters when they were originally thinking of this, yeah. um, they certainly consulted with a lot of religions and tried to stuff it full of a little bit of everything. Yeah. And I think they were a lot more successful than they necessarily even intended to be. And there are some fantastic books on religion and philosophy in the Matrix out there. Oh, might be worth checking out for when we uh, when we get there. It won't be too far yeah, off. No. <laughs> we uh, might call you back, uh, call, <laughs> call you back off the bench, and say if you're uh, if you're interested in chatting about it. Yeah, may uh, may may throw my husband into the fray on that one because I think he's actually done a movie night on the Matrix Ooh. or he's thought about it. Um, my husband's actually a professor of uh, in a philosophy department, um, and one of the things they do is their outreach is uh, movie night every semester where one of the local art houses shows a free movie and then you get a lecture from a professor afterwards. Wow, that's kind of cool. It. Yeah, it is. Uh, he has a propensity for doing Marvel films but uh, or Star Wars. But um, All right. Well, uh, if he ever does yeah. John Wick or anything, we'll... Uh... He's thinking about it, actually. <laughs> yes! um, he loves John Wick. Oh, he's a huge fan he's of gonna him. He's going to be all right. He's going to yeah. be all right. 
Yeah, no, I, you uh, will definitely get you and uh, Nick connected at some point, sure. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, no, the, the Matrix has a lot of very interesting um, pan-religious stuff in it. And sure, there's quite a bit of Buddhism. Um, and we all kind of noticed that after seeing it. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's it's kind of neat. I'm, uh, as we go through this and we're following his career mm-hmm. we're tra- some patterns begin to emerge you're like oh this is kind of interesting you know taken at a high level you're like this is kind of just a mess sometimes he's an action guy sometimes he's a love interest but then as we go through one at a time we're like huh actors in a- common directors mm-hmm. themes that sort of stuff yeah he seems to move through some themes and issues very cyclical yes absolutely it. um it, it is a very interesting career <laughs> Right. It's it's unlike really, truly anyone else. Yeah, I, I think it's caused him to be remarkably overlooked as an actor, which is too bad, because I actually think he's one of the best actors of our generation. Yeah. He's having he, a, something of a moment now, though. He is. So it's, he, we, hit, we, yeah. we hit at the right time, I think, with the yeah, podcast. You know, <laughs> sad Keanu kind of morphed into the internet's boyfriend. Yes. And there's a moment right now, and it's, it's actually wonderful to see. <laughs> He doesn't talk much about his private life, and I respect that. Oh, yeah. But from the things that are publicly known, it has not always been a very easy life. And it is nice to see that he is getting the recognition he deserves, both for being a pretty decent human being, but also a pretty awesome actor. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had one specific question about this movie, because uh, none of the three of us who are normally hosting have any authority here. And it was very (laughs) difficult to find this. You said you specifically don't ascribe to the reincarnation bit. Truth. Uh, mm-hmm. However, well, I don't know. Right, you don't know, right? And that's—I actually think that's great. I when when religions are like, it's this way. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. I'm like, how could you be so sure? Anyway, <laughs> reincarnation into three mm-hmm. different people. Can you talk yes. a little bit about that? Is that a thing? It is a thing. What? Yeah. I was like so convinced that, okay, uh, please, yeah. It, it, it is a thing, and it actually, I believe, comes from an older Indian Hindu uh, word, which I think is Nirmanakaya, but mm, I might be butchering that, and apologies to anybody who speaks Hindu <laughs> who knows, because I'm, I'm just, I'm white, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, yes. It is like the idea, though, of the Hindu avatar. So it's saying that there are a very small number of people. It's not common. And they would have to be probably what's known as a tolku to be able to do this. Mm. And it is where you are a special enough person in some regard. And it could be that you need you, – you are – simply needed in two places. You know, the the reasons why are a little murky and mysterious. But they have the ability to emanate as mind, speech, and enlightened activity. Or um, mm, there's two others, uh, karma and I think quality. Uh, I actually had it. I I pulled up an article on it recent that was recently written about it. Only because... um, the Dalai Lama actually mentioned this recently because there is some debate over uh, which Panchen Lama 
is the quote legitimate Panchen Lama. Yes. For people who aren't familiar with this story, basically the um, 10th Panchen Lama passed away and there's been a debate over who has the authority to say who the 11th Panchen Lama is. There was a period of time, very, very briefly, in Chinese history where the Chinese authorities were involved with selecting the Panchen Lama. And as such, the current Chinese government maintains that it is their responsibility as an atheist government to decide <laughs> who the next religious authority is on this one. Mm, um, mm-hmm. hmm. Makes total sense. <laughs> sure. And uh, yeah, so that happened. And basically the Dalai Lama recognized somebody else as the Panchen Lama. That little boy and his family were then taken away and have not been seen from since. And that was Oof. in 1995. Now, the Chinese authorities assure us that the six-year-old who had been announced to be the 11th Panchen Lama is perfectly fine. And that uh, he is he and his family are have living a completely normal life. He is studying. His older siblings are in university. His parents are party members. Um, But Hmm. nobody has seen any of them since 1995. Wow. Yeah. And so recently, the um, Dalai Lama has said that, you know, it might not be terribly unusual to have two Panchen Lamas because um, a century ago, and this is actually the direct quote um, that came from the uh, Central Tibetan Administration's paper um, in April of last year. One century ago, one very famous Kintse Wangpo has manifested five incarnations, body, speech, mind, quality, and activity. Of course, One person holds the seat, but something like this, a manifestation of previous incarnations, there could be more. So it's being interpreted to say that the Dalai Lama is acknowledging that there were five identified reincarnations of Kintsi Wenpo at that time. Um, Three is more common, five is a little unusual. And that we might be seeing the situation not only with the Panchen Lama, but also with the... um, uh, the Karmapa Lama. Um, there's another division over who is the acknowledged Karmapa Lama. Um, and again, okay, uh, this does not involve China. This just involves inner Tibetan politics. Some people acknowledged one person. Some people acknowledged another person. And they've recently gotten together at least to meet each other and are trying to work it out. Wow. And it is, again, considered a situation where the solution might be deciding that they are separate emanations of the same person. Um, And I believe I've seen people talking about the fact, too, that um, when you think technically um, the Panchen Lama and the Dalai Lama are both considered to be emanations or reincarnations of um, Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig, which is the Buddha of Compassion. Okay. Long answer short, there is precedence for it. It is very yeah. unusual, though. When just regular people start 
getting involved, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's well, when a government's like, we think we got this. It's like, dude, uh, I, you know, I just, I gotta, you gotta ask, like, what are your motivations? <laughs> they're two separate issues, really. Um, yeah. A lot of times these these children who are recognized as reincarnations of very important lamas or tulkus are then going to be raised up in a monastery environment by the people who knew this person. So you kind of get these situations of, of course, they're going to be like the person they're said to be because they're being raised by this person's closest companions. Yes. And... That's when it gets a little bit more difficult when the companions disagree about who the reincarnation is. And so a very simple way of settling that disagreement is to have emanations. Or to simply say, yeah, well, dude was really important, and so he came back <laughs> three times. You know? Yeah, agree to disagree, yeah. right? Or That's not very- <laughs> even agree to disagree. Let's agree that right. they're both. And we right. can there have, you go. we can all win this way. But it's very unusual. It doesn't happen very often. And, you know, the reasons for it can be as simple as there was a disagreement. Um, it could be the belief that, you know, the different aspects of the person are needed in different parts of the world for different people to learn from. Um, yeah. All kinds of things like that. It's not, I mean, I think that it's telling that when the Dalai Lama is talking about reconciliation between the Panchen Lamas, he has to go back a hundred years ago to find an example of it occurring. Right. That should be an indication of how unusual it actually is. Yeah. He's like, I got to go, I got to go read a couple uh, (laughs) texts here just to go back and Mm -hmm. make sure that this is a thing that we can say. So. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, you know, for him, not so much because, you know, that would have been... Oh, yeah, he was... That would have been his, probably, uh, something that his previous incarnation had experienced. So, something that his teachers were probably able to tell him about directly. Because, um, yeah, he's he's getting up there age-wise. Absolutely, yeah. S- still, still has that, um, you know, that spark, though. It does, but he's obviously also aging, and it's, it's... It is a tough thing to to see because you always have to gauge, like, is this trip to America going to be the last? Can I make it to wherever he's speaking so I can hear him? Um, yeah. And it's, it's difficult. Part of the whole thing is, as they say in the movie, you know, um, an awful lot of Buddhism is about accepting the fact that we die. And it, it comes for us all. It's part of life. And a lot of Buddhism is about accepting death which people find is to be very grim and morbid. Yeah. Uh, it is not something <laughs> sure. that uh, Western society does very well. And uh, you can really easily freak people out with it. Like um, I know a lot of people freak out when they see the skull, the cups made out of skulls or the flutes made out of a thigh bone or yes, things like that. Yeah. It, these are, these are reminders that we're, we're, we are all impermanent. We all die. I like that as a, as a, as a concept go back to bill and ted and they quoted kansas all we are is dust in the wind so i'm like oh it's great it works (laughs) it works on a lot of levels i can i can tie it back to keon wherever we go i'm bringing it back so (laughs) i uh when, when my husband and i got married we had um we had a death cab for cutie song on our our wedding playlist that 
just right. freaked everybody out because they were like, oh my God, how do you guys find this romantic? And the song's like, <laughs> it's talking about how I will follow you into, into the, the dark. dark. Yes! Yeah! <laughs> and we were, the first time we heard that song, we were, we were actually together and we were like, this is the most romantic song we've ever heard. <laughs> just like, and everyone else is like, this is such a morbid song. And we're like, but it's so beautiful right. you gotta yeah. just get past that surface thing that he's saying and you yeah it's all there it's all there <laughs> yeah that's cool so, oh, that's awesome you get that a lot as a buddhist i found in america just because you have a very different uh relationship with death and dying than the average american yeah um, different starting it. point right it's like oh. or a different ending point. right well yeah <laughs> more apt for sure for sure i have done work in clinical ethics um as a bioethicist and of course one of the things you, you deal with quite frequently in clinical ethics is death and dying yeah and there is definitely a very grabby hold on to-ness that is foreign in a lot of asian religions in particular but especially with Buddhism, because you just wouldn't do that because you want good quality, but eventually you're, you know, as we see in the movie with the Lama who is sick, Lama Norbu, yeah. his quality of life is going down as the movie goes on. He is, they show him weakening and weary and sicker and sicker, whatever he has cancer, I presume, because of the pills he was taking. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and he chooses his moment of death because he's reached the point where the quality of his life and the quantity of his life are no longer balanced. Yeah, I, that was a very be- that was a beautiful scene. Truly, yeah, yeah. goes into and, the deep uh, meditation, and and that is the way some Buddhist masters do die. Wow! In meditation, that that is actually an accurate depiction. Hmm. Some people can do exactly what was described, which was they enter that deep meditative state and they choose to die. That, that's a, there's a level of commitment there that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it takes a certain kind of special person to be like, okay, you know, this is, this is it. Yeah. I mean, there, it is generally monks who are older, already nearing the end of their lives to some degree, but yeah, it, it takes a, we, we, at least, I think, in America, see it as a very brave thing to recognize that now is the time your life is over. Right. Yeah. But I'm sure he's like, oh, I just hop on the next go around and... He'll be back. <laughs> right. As, as, the, uh, as the younger monk said, it's like, it's okay, he'll be back. Right. And, you know, I, it's, it's, a, it's... As somebody who doesn't necessarily believe that, I still find that a very refreshing outlook of not being you know grab on desperately with both hands to stay i want to say it's almost it's beautiful i think yeah it, that, that truly is yeah yeah but grim i will acknowledge <laughs> but beautiful <laughs> but grim correct right we can agree and that seems like a, a great point to close on and i want to be mindful of your time <laughs> sure. no 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 i'm not Trying to fall into these oh, no. types of puns. This is just literally <laughs> the words I would use anyway. All right, Kelly, this was awesome. So, th- so thank you for joining me here. 
as far as episodes and everything goes, you you know the drill. You find the website, coolbreezepod.com, uh, access all of our episodes, list the films we'll be reviewing, and much more. Uh, you can reach out by emailing coolbreezepod at gmail.com with any questions. You can hit us up on Twitter at coolbreezepod. Uh, you know you know all the other stuff. Review it. Give us a subscription, anything like that. Uh, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming very soon. Uh, but Kelly, uh, please do tell everyone where they can follow you on the internet if they want to learn more. Uh, yeah, if you'd like to get in touch, tell me what I got right, tell me what I got wrong, or otherwise talk about how awesome Keanu Reeves is, you can find me on Twitter at Roxa, R-O-C-Z-A, and all of my other social media can be found there, and it's just much easier to go there, and I'm most responsive there anyhow. And uh, thanks so much. You're all breathtaking. <laughs> one of us! One of <laughs> us! <laughs> You, you all know me. I'm at Dark Driving on Twitter. Follow me there or not. I don't care. As long as you subscribe to the show and you're enjoying this, that's what's super important to me. So with all of that, thank you all so much for joining us. And in the words of Bill S. Preston and Ted Theodore Logan, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. Dudes.